Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today George Leaf. He is Director of Content at the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal in North Carolina. He's a columnist at Forbes Magazine, and he's written often for National Review in the past. He's the author of a new novel, however, entitled The Awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale, a political fable for our time, and that is our topic today. Welcome, George. Glad to be on with you, Mark. First a question uh, before we get to the novel. What does the James Martin Center do? We are a small think tank, and we focus on higher education issues, and that almost always means the bad stuff that's going on in higher education, the waste, the frivolity, the venality, the politicization. Uh, those are our topics we write about several times a week. We host uh, occasional conferences, webinars, uh, all aimed at shining a spotlight on what has gone wrong, so terribly wrong, with higher education in this country. Just quickly, what is the, what's the website? www.jamesgmartin.center. There we go. Uh, no, no punctuation, no caps? No, okay. all just run together. Okay, okay. Uh, okay, now to your novel, which I, I read at times, laughed out loud uh, while, while reading it, A Political Fable. Who is your protagonist in this novel? All right, my, my main character is Jennifer Van Arsdale. She is a completely woke, liberal, or I shouldn't say liberal, I don't like to use misuse that word. We will say progressive writer. She works at the Washington Post. She's written books. She's a highly respected part of the left-wing intelligentsia. And she is asked if she would care to write the biography of America's first woman president, who has just left office after eight years of transforming America, doing all the things that the left-wing has been talking about doing for decades such as cracking down on freedom of speech, packing the Supreme Court, uh, adding new states, writing more and more stringent gun control legislation. Everything they wanted to do, they've had their way with America for eight years because they, they had total control. Now, this is an idea that came to me back in the summer of 2020 as I was thinking about, gee, what would happen if Biden and his friends were to sweep the elections and get the power that they've craved, unrestricted power for so long. What would America be like after eight years of that? 
And that horrifying prospect got me to think, thinking about the plot for this novel. And as I started thinking about that, I, I came up with the idea of what if a woke writer decided to turn the tables on them? And that's basically what this book is all about. I don't want to give too much away, but yeah. Jennifer does have an awakening as a, a consequence of unexpected things that happen to her. We won't give away what happens in those last few pages, because that's a, that, 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 that's a big one. That's a big one. But what, what you said a moment ago, let me just ask, outside the novel, separate, what is the, di- what is the difference, according to you, between a liberal and a progressive? Ah, okay. Glad, glad you asked that, Mark. For quite a few years now, I've been <sighs> advocating that we resuscitate, revive the meaning of the word liberal. A liberal, if you go back a century, meant someone who advocated liberty. Adam Smith was a liberal. Frederick Bastiat was a liberal. What they wanted to do was liberate people from the control of domineering institutions, state, guilds, any kind of institution that told people, here is your place, here's what you will do, here's what you may not do, and just just abide by it. Don't complain. You're not allowed to do that. Just accept your, your place in the order that we have ordained. That's what a liberal was, people who were against that. Now, the progressives, and again, this is a misuse of language, because what they really want is not something that is progress. But anyway, what the progressives, more than a century ago, decided to uh, foist upon America was their vision of a controlled society. They didn't like the idea of a free society. They didn't like the idea of free market capitalism. They didn't like the idea of limited government under the Constitution. People like Herbert Crowley and Woodrow Wilson said, we we must have a controlled society, controlled, of course, by forward-thinking people like themselves. And their agenda uh, for more than a century now has been to sweep away the Constitution's limits on government and replace it with an all-encompassing, omnipotent government under their power. And we've become, we're getting darn close to that uh, in recent years. We, we, we see evidence of that every day in the way the Biden administration keeps insisting it has more and more power to control more and more of our lives. This ultimately will lead to the demise of a free society in America, freedom of speech, uh, freedom to run your own life, freedom to enter into business, freedom to make your own contracts, all of which would be controlled by their their laws and their bureaucrats. You call this a political fable. Why approach political issues in, in fictional form? What's the advantage of doing it that way? I think the advantage, Mark, is that more people will read and understand the message in a word of the work of fiction than they would in in a serious book about on political economy. For example, in in the book, I work in numerous of the lessons that I used to uh, try to convey to my students when I was teaching back in the 1980s. Lessons, for example, on Put a public choice theory, 
the idea that government uh, officials pursue their own agenda rather than pursuing some some notion of the, the public interest. Thomas Sowell has been a great proponent of, of that, and he has worked uh, public choice theory into many of his books and articles. Well, I put public choice theory points into the mouths of, of my everyday characters, and I think it's easier for people to understand public choice theory, the evils that, that come from un, unlimited government power, if it's set in a, in a novel as opposed to just in, in the rather dry prose of pages in a serious book. So that's why I chose to try fiction, which I had never even thought of writing until, well, not since high school, when I came up with the idea for this book back in 2020. You know, I'm, I'm going to say I, I agree with you 100% about the sometime advantages of creating, well, I don't know, I don't want to be too mechanical about it, but presenting ideas in literary or artistic form. I think this is something that the left has understood so much better than the right. They're so much better than, than, than conservatives yeah. are when it comes to novels and images and songs and and all the rest of the expressive arts. Why is that? Uh, I, I'm hitting you out of the I blue think... with, that, with that, George. <laughs> because I don't really have a good answer to that myself. I don't have a good answer either, but it certainly does seem that they are better at it. Maybe it's just because they think in terms of shaking, shaping people's emotions more than shaping people's intellectual perceptions. We're, we're pretty good at, at trying to pitch arguments at the intellectual level. They understand and have understood for more than a century now that you'll get more people if you hit hit their emotions. And I, I work on that a little bit in, in the book, hitting people in the emotional level. Right. I think they're going to identify with my characters and what they have, what they're put through by the statists. And, and I, I think that's, that's why this book is getting a, a lot of good reviews, a lot of traction. Yeah, and, you know, you can go back in history and look at the way works of art have had a powerful social Influence, you know, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, 100, 110, 115 yeah. years ago, which yeah. led to you know federal regulation of the of the food industry in, in the point. United States. We we need a lot more novels like yours, George. Are, do you have do you have five more in the works, please? <laughs> well, if this one does well enough, I certainly have a sequel in mind. I set it up for a sequel, and I think I could use my same characters to illuminate. The issues that I think we've we've got to get more people fired up on. The the big question in the book is: Are we past the point of no return? Has the the left gotten so much power, and, they, and there's no question that they have enormous power, financial power, regulatory power, uh, educational power to manipulate what students come to believe. There's so much power that they're they're leveraging every minute of the day mm -hmm. that we're close to that tipping point where there's just no way to get back, no way to start recovering the lost freedom. 
But are we past that point? I don't think we're past that point, and that's why I wrote this book and why I would like to write another one if this one does well enough. Okay. Our journalist has this prime writing assignment, a biography of, of the idol of the progressive age of, of yeah. this time. Right off the bat, should we, should we ask the question about the ethics of a journalist being so so enamored and and so invested now now financially invested in a politician oh absolutely that that is a big part of the predicament we find ourselves in that most journalists today are not journalists as they were thought of a generation or two ago people who were expected to Tell it like it was. Tell the truth. Today, most journalists are like my fictitious Jennifer. All they think about is how can I slant a story to make sure that the readers will be further inclined to accept big government. Everything seems to be slanted that way, whether it's about the environment or about alleged racism or about these gender issues we hear. Everything is slanted so that people will think, oh, government must step in and do something. Or conversely, to dissuade people from thinking a free society might handle this better. COVID is a great example. The media spewed out story after story after story for the last couple of years, leading people to think government has got to do something to protect us against the scourge of COVID. And anyone who said otherwise would be smeared. And I think it is unethical for people who purport to be journalists to be taking sides and refusing to, to write, write stories that do anything other than convey a slanted message. You, you that's know, the way journalism has gotten these days, and it's because of the schools of journalism that don't actually teach the craft of journalism, as it used to be known, but instead are just turning out ideologues. In your story, not Jennifer and nobody around her ever raises the question, look, are you compromising your, your independence, your truth-telling here by getting so, so, so tough, by taking on an assignment, getting paid by the people that, you know, I, I thought this was speaking truth to power. Uh, nothing, nothing. And you know what? It's entirely believable that no one should, should challenge her on, on, if you did have someone raise it, that that, that, that would, that have a little implausibility uh, to it in, in that, in that age. Now, let let me ask, let let me get to Jennifer. Yes. She, she's, she's unawakened. Uh, What are the prime conditions or, or traits of her, her unawakened condition? At yeah, the start. Yes, exactly. What are the characteristics exactly. of this kind of mind? Yeah. Well, she went to uh, Oberlin College, intending to study music. She loves classical music, by the way. That, that's that's problem, one problem. Remaining, remaining touch back to reality was that she loves classical music. Anyway, she goes to Oberlin, and she decides, no, I'm not, not going to study music. I'm enamored of journalism, and I just love what I've heard about how journalists can help transform America. Her 
her education, put that in quotation marks, her miseducation actually, is what puts her on the path of a true believing, never doubting advocate of a certain mindset, the so-called progressive mindset, that the government solves all of our problems and, and uh, we have to transform the America away from the, the founding ideals of individual freedom and limited government. We have to get away from those antiquated notions and embrace the new scientific view of government control. That's Jennifer in a nutshell. And she is always around other people who think the same way. She never hears. And when she occasionally does hear, she never listens to people who question her ideals. In fact, she admits that she, she dismisses all such people out of hand until certain events happen that cause her to have to listen to people she otherwise would have completely disdained. But I think that is exactly the mindset of most of the journalists we find, especially the, the Beltway journalists, who never, never consider a, a thought outside of their, their, their mental construct of the world. Uh, why does her enjoyment of classical music trouble her? Ah, it troubles her a little bit because that puts her at odds with the whole woke crowd. Uh, in the last few years, dozen years or so, I've come across numerous articles where woke progressives are saying, oh, classical music, it's, it's too white. It somehow projects white hegemony. Oh, we have to have... To say one example, we have to have blind auditions for our orchestras because they're too white. We can't just consider a musical ability any longer. We have to now consider diversity. We have to consider the race. We have to balance orchestras to have enough diversity in them. So they're, they're, getting, rid of, they're, they're getting rid of blind auditions. That's what, that's what a, a lot of these woke writers want. And that's the one thing that Jennifer, with her understanding and love of music, can't quite accept, that, that classical music poses a cultural problem. She loves it just the, the way it is and can't see why the woke crowd insists on, on tearing it down, as she understands will happen if they have their way. You know, that's the, the, the chink in the the armor that defends her woke point of view. Uh, she has a little doubt about this one element of wokeness, and because she's not completely armored against wokeness, when those events happen to her, starting with a where she has to be saved from criminals, uh, her mind is is open a crack, and then it opens wide to. Uh, to an alternative view of looking of the world. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, 
all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. She meets with Professor Fawn, Professor, President Fawnsworth. President. For the, for the first time, they have their interview after, after Jennifer has been screened and approved to be the writer of the book. Um, in that interview, President Farnsworth spent a lot of time talking about her high school and college years, long before yes. her presidency. Why, why, why is that all that stuff important to her? Oh, that's crucial because it was her education that formed Pat Farnsworth, Patricia Farnsworth, the woman, first woman president of the United States. Her view of the world was formed in in her high school and college classrooms, where she was taught by true believing left wingers who got her to understand the world the way they understand the world, that America's traditions of private property and free enterprise and limited government were bad traditions, were harmful traditions, that tra- traditions that have to be overthrown if the country's ever to be socially just. Hearing that from teacher after teacher after teacher in high school and college, that formed Pat Farnsworth's view of the world and put her on, on a path that uh, she pursued eagerly throughout through law school and then as she was uh, elected into Congress and became the Attorney General of California, all of that was prelude to her wanting to be president so she could transform America and also do very good things for herself. And, and, and that, I think, is also an important part of this. Jennifer starts to realize there's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy in these these left-wing avatars like Pat Farnsworth. They're, they're, they, they, they talk about their, their, their great commitment to the cause, but at the same time, they want to line their pockets, they want to live well, and they just enjoy lording over everyone else, just like the, the lords of the feudal manors enjoyed bossing around the, the poor peasants and telling them, well, you'll do as you're told and you'll like it or else. That's, that's the same mindset that we now see amongst our, our elite overlords today, like Pat Farnsworth. Uh, now, Jen, of course, doesn't ask any, any tough questions. What, what does President Farnsworth offer as her greatest achievements in, in her time? In oh, office? sure. Yes. Well, her first great achievement was packing the Supreme Court. And in the... America, I envision in the not-too-distant future, uh, the left wing has enough power that they are able to pack the Supreme Court, adding six new justices, all of whom are cut from the social justice warrior bolt of cloth, people who who judge cases not based on the law, but based on, on their vision of what is socially right and who the plaintiff and defendant happen to be are they uh, are they oppressed or are they not oppressed? So they pack the Supreme Court. They also get rid of the filibuster. They don't want any of the any heel dragging any longer. They uh, 
add add Puerto Rico and uh, 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 one other state. I'm trying to think which which one it would be. Puerto Rico and oh, oh DC, of course. DC, DC, they, DC. They, they get representation. Right. DC gets representation. Yeah. Yeah. Right, which means four new far left senators reliably uh, tilting tilting the votes in the Senate. So Congress is no longer a problem. Congress will go along with everything she wants. And then, and then perhaps most important, and now that she has her, her uh, the judiciary under control, they pass a hate speech legislation. And of course, the hate speech legislation is used chiefly to target the speech of people whom they don't like. And once they can do that, and they can use uh, hate speech to silence the, the uh, voices of the dissidents against the, her progressive point of view, that tilts the scales even and, further. And her vision is that America is such a better place now after yeah. these reforms and transformations have gone through. Now, you, you, you lay out that scene. And this takes place uh, much of it in Laguna Beach, California, which is down, down in Orange mm-hmm. County, which Orange County is known as sort of a conservative place, but Laguna is sort of a little artist colony. Uh, yeah. and, and so a lot of a lot of left-wing stuff is centered down in there. I thought that was, was interesting you, you, in terms of the geography in, in the novel, but something happens to her that night, and I, I don't want you to describe what happens to her because we want, let's have readers go ahead okay. and, and find out how that happens. But a man comes and helps her with something. His name is Will. What is the version of California reality that Will offers to her that is contrary to President Farnsworth? Yes, yes. Uh, that, that is, that's the turning point of the book. Jennifer finds herself under attack by criminals. And she is saved from them by a black Navy vet who is patrolling the area since the police are now defunded and and don't patrol much any longer. And he's armed with an illegal pistol, should have been turned in under under Pat Farnsworth's uh, dictates, but he, he didn't do it. And... He saves Jennifer's life. And it's because of that that Jennifer feels she owes him something more than, the, oh, thanks, goodbye. And so she starts listening to the man. And his views don't, don't conform at all to what she believes, and they certainly don't conform to what she thinks uh, blacks should believe. She believes blacks have this oppressed mentality and they're eager for government handouts and government favors and government protection. And as it turns out, he doesn't buy any of those views. In fact, I put a lot of Thomas Sowell's wisdom into the mouth of Will Collier. Hmm. And as as he explains what has happened to California, where he's lived all his life, uh, as a result of Pat Farnsworth's policies as governor and, and eight years as president, Jen starts to realize that the whole progressive mindset might be a mistake. 
and she can't stop listening to him. And then he invites her if she'd like to come to a meeting of the Free People of Laguna Beach, a neighborhood organization of people who voluntarily help each other. Sounds like a, sounds decides, like a bunch of yeah, troublemakers I would like to, to hear them. Well, I'm afraid that these people might be in trouble under the Biden administration. They could be regarded as domestic terrorists because they don't agree with the government, big government agenda. They, in fact, uh, believe in self-help and volunteerism. The way I try to convey events uh, and circumstances in Laguna Beach, it's a, it's a contrast between Adam Smithian notions of, of the, meta, the, the theory of moral sentiments, his earlier book, where he talks about how people are just driven through human compassion, want to help each other without coercion, and all the good that they do in the community, and the damage that has been done to Laguna Beach by big government. For instance, there was an eminent domain project that ruined a big chunk of Laguna Beach, bulldozing a nice residential area. And of course, that wasn't just something I made up. That's exactly the, the facts of a Supreme Court decision, uh, Kilo versus New London, Connecticut, back in the 1990s, where the Supreme Court said, well, it's okay if we use eminent domain uh, not to take property because it needs, is needed for some public uh, purpose, like a road, but just because politicians think it, it might be good for them politically to take land and give it over to a it was commercial development. big company, a big commercial developer. Uh, and that ruined a big chunk of Laguna Beach. So here we have a contrast between the free people who help each other voluntarily and the damage the government has been doing through eminent domain and also the way it's ruined many of the businesses in town. I hope that that's a contrast that, that readers will remember. Now, here, well, here's a, here's a question, George. When she leaves the meeting, she doesn't talk very much herself. Why doesn't she just toss all these people into, into the deplorables basket uh -huh. and go back to... Go back to her assignment. That's, that's a good question, Mark. Why doesn't you do it? Because there's just enough integrity left in Jennifer Van Arsdale from her, her upbringing in a West Michigan home where, where, where people worked hard. And, and perhaps a little bit of a, a influence of her sister, who also was not woke, who has been importuning her for years to think about an alternative way of looking at the world. There's just enough integrity left in Jen that instead of saying, well, you, these people are deplorable, I'm not listening to them, she, she comes to see them as real people with real problems who aren't lying to her, and she takes their, their point of view to heart. That's what makes all the difference. And then she starts talking with other people who knew Pat Farnsworth uh, as, as a college student, as, as a law professor. Mm -hmm. And they tell her more things about the real Pat Farnsworth that are further disquieting. All of this uh, gets into her head and she can't get it out. So maybe she wasn't, wasn't completely woke 
and, and this little chink in that woke armor is all it takes to, to break apart her worldview. And I'm hoping that that's a good representation of reality because the woke point of view is so intellectually feeble that it takes just, I think, a bit of touch of reality for it to start tumbling like a house of cards. Well, lots more going on in the novel. We go back to Washington, D.C. or Alexandria for, for much of the conclusion. But uh, for now, the book is The Awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale, A Political Fable for Our Time. George Leaf, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Mark. My pleasure. Been great talking with you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.